So what's harder, finding a life partner, a marriage partner, or finding a business partner? I know a few people that are going to argue a business partner. Fact is, finding that person to share a business with, to help grow it, build it, and then align at every step along the way, super hard. So today, we're going to discuss business partnerships, why they're important, how to find them, where to find them, how to keep them, today on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. If you are paying attention, this is episode number 11, and we're in our second week of our six-week run on talent, recruiting, resourcing, culture. And today, well, today's all about partnerships, finding that perfect partner. We hear these story tales of the two dorm room mates that decide to go found a company. But for all of those success stories, how many wreckages of friendships and relationships are left along the way because those partnerships are just doomed for failure? Inarticulated message, misaligned goals, changing goals as time goes on, or even what happens when there's real money on the table. So Nikhil, one of four founders of the company PESA, is their chief product officer. He was also head of Walmart Labs for a number of years, and he went off on this venture with three other people, and he talks about strengths, challenges, the hard times, the good times of what it's like to have partners and what partnership really means. Nikhil has a great, rich perspective on this idea of partnership, how to find it, how to make it work, how to fail at it at times. So sit back, take a listen while Nikhil walks us through partnerships today on the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, Jill and I are both excited to have our next guest on here. Uh, Nikhil, thank you for joining us. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing, and then we'll get into our, uh, our great series of questions for you. Great. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Todd. Really happy to be here. So, name's Nikhil. Uh, I am the founder of a startup called PESA. P-A-Y-S-A. We are a consumer and enterprise service that is in the, call it the human capital management space, the people space or the talent space. And we are using large scale data and machine learning. Uh, some, Some people call it artificial intelligence. Any of these techniques to help companies and employees make better decisions using large data sets. That's kind of who we are in a nutshell as a company. I'm one of the four co-founders and we're based in Palo Alto. A little bit of background on myself. Before uh, starting PESA, I was at Walmart Labs, which is uh, the tech and product arm of Walmart. I I had a hand in creating that group with, with acquisition by Walmart of a small startup I was at. It was called Cosmics. Back in 2011, Walmart bought us to create Walmart Labs. And a lot of the experiences I've had building large teams and making an impact are are things that I learned while I was there and at Cosmics before that. And uh, really happy to be sharing some of my experiences at PESA with you guys. Thank you for having me. Well, well, perfect. Well, uh, I think, you know, one of the things that we were both really eager to talk to you about is you know, you're a founder now who's taking his organization through exit. And, you know, one of the things I think we mm-hmm. want to start with is, 
let's let's talk about you know the exit. Let's talk about um, why, mm-hmm. why now. What is it you're you're sort of thinking and going through? What's what's driving it? And what's the experience you've had? Some of the prep conversations you and I've had. It's it's a fascinating process. I think it's something that uh, most founders uh, aspire to get to that place where they they can start to drive their exit. And, and we'd love to hear. You know, tell us a little bit more about what's what's going on with you and what's what's driving it, what's happening. Yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, the first thing about the exit is uh, it is kind of an explicit decision that we had to make as a co-founding team to to dedicate one of us, in this case, me, full time towards this objective. So, the reason it uh, kind of became a decision for us is as Pesa grew, we grew. Uh, to more than a million visitors a month over the last two years since we were founded. And we raised a seed round of funding and we were looking to go raise, a se- go raise a second round. And the second round, call it a series A, was to be based on how we monetize this, this company, this traffic, right? A million users are coming every month and how do we figure out a business model? So we had a, several different ideas. Um, tr- we were trying to go to market so that we could establish some, co- call it some early alpha and beta pilots with enterprise customers. And as part of that process, one of the potential partners expressed interest in the company. So, hey, you guys are doing something really interesting. We could partner with you and enable a go to market for you guys, or you could join the team. So when, as a founder, on the one side, you're trying to build a company, you know, every small company wants to become big, and that's kind of the goal we also had. And we're aspirational, but we've also been uh, around the block a little bit. We have seen this happen before. So when a situation like that comes up, we really stepped back and said, look, someone is expressing interest in the team and the technology and the, the business. How should we think about it? Should we go ahead with our plans and continue to build towards a series A or should we uh, continue on this other path and and, and um, find a home for, for what we've built and that can have an impact at a much larger scale. So the, f- the first step is actually coming to that decision around, hey, we want to do this and we're going to dedicate serious effort around it. And actually one of the founders is going to get involved in, in, running, the sh- in running that process. The second thing is, of course, so what does the rest of the team do? How do you... Uh, continue the process without um, not violating, but without creating any kind of confusion or ambiguity within the team. And at the same time, continue to build towards what the team was building towards, which is sort of the next round of funding uh, and, and, uh, and revenue. So we are continuing to do that in parallel with the rest of the team, while we, as a founding team, made a conscious decision that I would dedicate all my time towards this process. So that's kind of the background there. And towards the specific, specifically to the process, I'll just summarize it real quick and, and um, give it back to you, Todd, which is, so what are the, if, if someone is expressing interest, let's expand from there. Let's look at who else is in that market. And secondly, what adjacent markets can we serve with our, with our product and technology and who's playing in those markets? who has capability like we do, who doesn't, and create, creating kind of a market map, and then actually working through a process of finding the right people at all of these companies 
between corporate development, which is kind of the team that runs the process, but more importantly, the business side, the team that would actually ingest our company and work with us. So there, there, there I began the process of kind of um, going through. And then once you have a, a few people interested that uh, want to sort of take the next step, we kind of co-release all our efforts around that and try and drive the process to a conclusion. So that's kind of the stage we are in it right, right now. But just wanted to give you guys a kind of a high-level idea and a, and a framework on how, how we thought about it and why we decided to do it and why now. I hope that answers those questions, Todd. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and one of the things I was thinking about too is, so, you know, you had, you had this role of part of a, you know, in creating a larger organization within Walmart and doing mm -hmm. digital labs. And now you've gone off and gone on your own. And then you're being tapped on the shoulder to take the organization through this very specific negotiation. Mm -hmm. Did um, what, what was in your background and what sort of things did you rely on and, and leverage to uh, prepare you to go through this sort of exit strategy? Because I'm sure you, you've got to just kind of take a leap of faith and jump into it. It's mm -hmm. not something that you necessarily go to B school for. Mm -hmm. So what was it, what was it that you pulled on to, to uh, be successful through the exit? Yeah, you know, look, so the time at Walmart prepared me to really understand what matters to, to driving and running a business. And some of the uh, learnings we had there was we needed to go fast. And some of the times we need to go fast inorganically. What I mean by that is make acquisitions. During my time at Walmart, we started off with 40 people in Walmart labs. And when I left, there were more than 2,000 people. And roughly half or uh, more, roughly half came from uh, hiring and, and maybe a little bit less than half came from, call it, acquisitions. And these were all a combination of both team and team plus tech, team plus tech plus business, and all kinds of, uh, all three types of acquisitions. So I saw this happen from the other side, so to speak, the buy side, a lot of times at Walmart, and I was one of the key people involved in doing those deals. So having that experience from the buy side gave me the insight in what people need when they buy a piece of technology or a, or a team or both or a, or a business. So that was really helpful. The second thing I took away from that is uh, the number of relationships I had made in the marketplace, though it was in e-commerce and retail and advertising and marketing, some of my uh, relationships, they moved as well into some of the spaces that I'm in right now with PESA because there was a lot of awareness about two to three years back that the amount of investment in marketing and marketing tech is is a lot as when you look at that same thing in in human resources and talent it's a lot further behind so a lot of the people i knew in those spaces kind of moved into these roles at companies or started their own companies doing the same so having those relationships really really helped understanding the process really helped and then being able to pinpoint what how to think about a market what are the needs how do we as pesa fulfill those needs and who in the market might be looking for some capabilities like what we have. So trying to understand that from the outside is pretty hard. But when you come out to the market to understand how to do how to help companies do that, it makes it a lot easier. So we were able to bring our um, 
when I mentioned earlier, when we started the partnership conversations about things we thought would be helpful, we immediately ran into the situation where we were we had to think about this exit. So the Walmart experience was incredibly helpful in in um, understanding what it takes to to for a buyer to be interested in what you have. You know, companies are bought, not sold, is kind of what I'd learned. And to a large extent, that's kind of the process that I'm trying to create here, where you want someone to buy you, not you shouldn't be trying to sell your company. Right? That's kind of where we are. And a lot of that I learned from my Walmart experience. Well, and, and I heard you mention a couple of times this um, this sort of outside-in perspective. What does the customer mm-hmm. want? What does the buyer want? What is the... Mm-hmm. What is the person on the outside of the marketplace really looking for and how do we serve that need? And -hmm. I think it's one of the things that has been a hallmark of your success and your growth over the last couple of iterations, last couple of roles, is you've had that perspective. So I think this is one of those things that is a struggle for a lot of leaders is um, getting that third-party perspective of what do people think about us? What are we creating? What are we doing? And you seem to be pretty good at it. Any any tips, tricks? How do, how do you go about getting to that place where you start thinking about natively, start mm-hmm. thinking about what, is the, what does the other person want? Because that's not a skill yeah. I think everybody has, and you seem to be pretty good at it. Well, uh, I appreciate you saying that, Ari. It is not something that has come easy for me as well. Because, you know, when you are deep in the mix of creating a product, building a company, and solving a problem, you think solving that problem is what, you know, that, that's what people want. But in many cases, it turns out that you're solving the problem that nobody wants to, to buy, right? You're, um, I think there's a phrase for it, I forget, it's not coming to my mind right now, but it's a solution that is looking for a problem, right? That's probably what I was right. thinking about. On the other hand, if you start it's a really hard thing, and I and going to business school really helped me with this. Which is, yeah, I have a solution, but what is the problem that these people have? What what do my customers want? And this is not just a thing that applies to when you're trying to sell a product to get some revenue or trying to sell a company. It applies to the whole process of building a company where you really have to put the customer as your north star. You have to make every decision based on what the customer wants and not what you have built as a, as a technology company or as a company. It's not what you have. It is what they want. So that perspective has, was hard to get. And you, know, you read things. I'm a big fan of Jeff Bezos when he talks about customers, even in his annual letter this um, last Wednesday. His, his point was, you know, customers are awesome because they change their minds all the time. It was really funny that somebody would say that because a lot of people say customers keep changing their minds and I need to keep updating my product and they, they talk about it like a bad thing. But Bezos talks about it like the best thing ever. And they keep you on your toes to keep you aware of the competition. So you could either choose to track everything going on in the market, your partners, your competition, yourselves, your technology, their technology, their features, your features, blah, blah, blah. Or you could just listen to your customer, right? So once that realization came, because your customer is really making the decision by investing with their money and their time. So if you don't have something that is right, or if you're doing something wrong, it is pretty easy to find out if you talk to a customer. So once I developed that perspective, listening to these incredible leaders, going through the experience myself, 
then it kind of second nature. Now everything starts from there. That's the true North Star. I hope that answered the question. I hope it was helpful. I mean, I'm. Yeah, no. And I think we'll want to dive into this a little bit, a little bit deeper. So um, how do you, how do you put that into practice? So it's, it's one thing to say, so the first thing is, you know, realizing you need to talk to your customer, but then it's saying, okay, well, how do you, so what's, what are some of the things that you've done to actually, do you just go and visit customers? You go on sales calls and do ride alongs? Yeah. Surveys. What's, what are the things you do that have worked well for you? I mean, it's just all of the above. Uh, And to unpack that a little bit, PESA is a a marketplace, really. It's a marketplace company. We have consumers or employees uh, learning about salaries and their career decisions on one half of the platform. On the other half, we have companies and recruiters uh, understanding the market with our data or wanting to reach our users for recruiting, right? So we have both a consumer product and a B2B enterprise product. We have both. It's kind of like Google Search and Google AdWords, right? That's kind of the analogy here. So on yeah. the consumer side, listening to customers at scale is very hard. Like you, you can do focus groups, you can do interviews, you can do surveys, we, we do all of the above. We have design mocks, we put it out there and, and we buy through user testing or some other some, some of these other resources, we, we, we buy testers and we get their feedback. <clears throat> we talk to friends, we do one-hour interviews, we give them gift cards, all of the above. But the problem with much of that is that it's subjective and it's not cannot be scaled. So a lot of the listen to the customer sort of in quotes comes from analysis of the metrics. So you have web and app-based tracking software that you can use. We all know what the, those software packages are. It's deployed on our site. We don't have an app, but it's deployed on our site. And we constantly monitor the user behavior across time and across product releases. And we're tracking towards specific metrics, both on the engagement side, so how much time people are spending on the site, on what, by what, on what page are they spending more time, what pages are spending less. So the engagement metric, as well as what we call conversion metrics. After all that engagement, how many people are actually signing up for our core service, which is, which is differentiated from everybody else in the market, happens after sign up. So how many people are doing that, right? So we track those metrics at scale when you have millions of people uh, coming to the website you can't talk to all of them so that's the way you do it on the consumer side but on the enterprise side it's a whole other game you really don't want to build anything until you've talked to like enough people that say they want it and more important than want it they're willing to pay for it because a lot of customers will say they want it but when you actually build it and take it to them they'll be they'll say something else or they'll like give me a few other changes you really want to verify whether they're going to pay for it Obviously, you can directly ask them, but at the same time, the other way to figure that out is what they want is what are they already paying for? What's the existing market? And how much are they willing to sort of stick their neck out and work with a startup? Nobody gets fired for using IBM, but you could get fired for using Pesa, right? So in in our market, when you think about uh, us playing in multiple markets, we have to think about who would really pay for what we have. And what's the status quo? What's the state of the art? And how much better are we than the state of the art? And based on that, how much are they actually willing to stick their neck out and pay for this? Because we are not sort of the IBM in our market. We are like a new startup, right? So that in itself was a whole nother experience as we came out of the market, which is, again, something I was leading before we got this question from one of our potential customers. 
that made me swing over into this exit process. But really, the to summarize, what you do with respect to customers is different for consumer and enterprise, and you just kind of have to go through the sort of the playbook there to make that happen, and it includes everything you mentioned. Well, and the perspective that I really liked was you, you weren't just uh, holding on to this idea that if you build this amazing product, the world will be the path to your door. That, no, that, if, you, if you build Jill it, they I, will not come. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's one of the things that Jill and I have said a few times, uh, especially with people on the podcast here, is it, it does take more than just building something amazing. So the things you touched on are are they willing to take a risk on a company like us? Are they willing mm-hmm. to pay for it? Are they willing mm-hmm. to pay for the features that we're building in? Mm-hmm. And then I'm sure there's even, and you just like anyone else run into this where suddenly those first early customers start steering your product development. Mm-hmm. It's easy to start shifting um, mm-hmm. and letting letting the product get away from the original vision based on the few the needs of a few early customers as well. So all mm-hmm. of those decisions go into your planning and, and um, execution of how you're actually mm-hmm. taking your products and your services to market. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, if, if there was a question there, I mean, how, I'm wondering if you're asking me if we did went through all of that or. Yeah. I mean, it does. It sounds like those were the, yeah. those were the decisions that you had to make along the way. You didn't just assume. Right. And I think that's the question. Absolutely. You know, how did you get to this place where you didn't assume what was going to happen that you actually started making decisions about what was it, what was real or real possibility in the marketplace? Yeah, I mean, you 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 have to start somewhere, right? I mean, in the end, whether it's on the consumer side or on the enterprise side, you're going to have to start somewhere. Obviously, if you build it, they won't come. You have to have some hypothesis of what it is that the problem you're solving is that somebody's willing to pay for. And you know, let's let's take the uh, let's take both the examples. On the consumer side, we knew there was a lot of uh, need in the market for salary transparency, both for the fact that you want to know what your true market value is, but also in the case of you know the the gender and ethnicity pay equality debate that's going on, that's raging, I should say, in the market. So our we knew that was a case, but what exactly is it that people are willing to bet on as a differentiated feature because there is Glassdoor, there is um, you know some other companies that have some salary information. Everybody's telling us that's inaccurate. So our approach to that was to make it accurate using true partnerships. So that was a problem that people pointed out. Glassdoor is not accurate. So how can you make it accurate? So we specifically addressed that by getting real salary data using partnerships before we launched a completely consumer-driven salary site, right? which nobody nobody believes in. We also tied the incentive of the product to, to the reason that people gave us data. So in Glassdoor, you go give your salary data to unlock reviews. So what are you going to enter? Because you just enter whatever, because what you're entering your salary data for has nothing to do with accessing the site. You get reviews it's in return. So we said we will not do that. We'll only ask for salary data if people want to get raises and they can go talk to their manager. So when you go talk to your manager, with a report from us, with your number in that report, you're not going to put some random number in there. You're going to put your real number in there because your manager is going to see it. So that was the sort of the problem and the solution on the consumer side. On the enterprise side, there are there are a couple of different markets we are testing. Recruiting is one. Compensation benchmarking is one. 
So if you think about what a comp benchmarking tool does today, if you give it, if you're trying to hire somebody and create levels in your company, there's just a few things they look at. Okay, I'm going to have a, a few levels for software engineers. But software engineers come in hundreds of flavors. Somebody who does deep learning, who has spent some time at Google, is very different in terms of level compared to someone who does HTML front-end programming and app development. So both might be from uh, Stanford, both have an undergraduate in computer science, both might live in the Bay Area, both might work at Google, but both have very different values in the market. So we believe that providing a tool to help companies understand that nuance, and number two, as we think about gender and ethnicity, pay, and we also think about salary history, uh, laws passed around the country, how do you make an offer? As a company, you can't ask somebody what they used to make. So how do you make an offer? That's not an insult to the candidate, but at the same time, doesn't create such a pleasant surprise that you're like blown your budget, right? So these are the sort of the specific identification of problems that, that we know people were having and then built products to specifically address that. So both on the consumer side and on the enterprise side, I don't know. Hopefully that kind of gave more color to how you actually think from the customer side and actually solve these problems, right? Well, absolutely, and it gives a it gives a real world perspective to the mm -hmm. real world problem that you're you're addressing and approaching. So the um, uh, the downside of these podcasts is you know twenty twenty five minutes goes by really quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I could stay on and, and talk with you for another hour, uh, but I think we'd start to lose people after a while. So we're going to wrap up here in a second, but I did want to give us an opportunity to cover say, you know one more sort of key area. And and I think it's you know it's this so you you may not feel like this in the space but to a large degree because of what you've had in your experiences um, going through acquisition helping to grow that business going off on your own growing mm -hmm. that business and now looking to exit you've checked off a lot of the boxes that I think a lot of founders especially early founders really mm -hmm. uh, aspire to to get to so to some degree you're you're the seasoned veteran. Um, if if you were to think about kind of mentoring and talking to, mm -hmm. you know, a few early stage founders that were thinking about um, really getting their companies off the ground, what do you think the couple of things you would want to sit down over a cup of coffee and tell them in terms yeah. of what you've learned, you know, hard lessons learned or good successes won? Um, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, there's so many things hard that come to mind, but I'm just trying to think about <laughs> think about some of the most important things, most important decisions. So starting from the very first time you have a thought about starting a company, you want to think about your co-founders. There's, there's stats and data that suggest that uh, the most successful startups have had are correlated with two co-founders. We started with four, and it's quite a low success rate for startups that had four co-founders because I'll tell you why in a second. So that's a really important decision. It comes around to what you know as a founder and what you don't know, which is what you want in your co-founder. You want to be able to have a partner that you trust. You just don't go pick a co-founder because you want one. You go pick a co-founder because you want to work with one and you work with them a lot. So the four co-founders here and the rest of the team all come from Cosmic's Walmart Labs for the most part. So I knew what I was getting into based on working with these people. So, but that is the number one thing you got to think about as a founder. The reason is, Times are good when you're starting a company, 
but there are going to be back times, there are going to be downs. And that's when you really want to link your arms with people that you really trust and you work with for a long time. True colors come out at that time. And so if you don't have that level of trust, you quickly erode any kind of capital, personal capital that you have. And then you see teams breaking up and companies going south. It's pretty hard to recover from a situation where one of the founders leaves, right? So that's a really important thing, the choice of founders. The next step right after that is your choice of investors. And ideally, uh, you have that option where you have a multiple, a uh, couple of different choices to pick from, but it's also pretty uh, lucky that we got into that situation. A lot of the startups don't even get a single term sheet. And even if you get a term sheet, it's usually the one and only one that you have. So that's the second thing is linking your arms up with investors because these are the guys who are going to help you, counsel you. And there are different ways to pick that. You can say people who have experience in my industry or people who have good connections, or people who know a certain type of company, whether it is a consumer or an enterprise or a marketplace like we have. So there are different ways you want to think about your company and how one investor may be better than the other in terms of what they bring to the table besides capital. right? Then the third thing is kind of what is it that you're building towards your customer and having a clear strategic point of view on what problem you're solving for your customer. because as you go through the nitty gritty and the day to day, you're going to run into all kinds of questions about, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right approach? So you want to be able to refer back to that kind of key customer and strategy, let's call it a document that you put together. And you always refer back to that as your North Star. And you have your hypothesis in there, you have your assumptions in there, and you go back and validate them. Your market changes not only because you are trying something different based on customer feedback, but there are market level disruptions that come in as waves and take out entire markets like you saw happen with uh, enterprise IT and cloud, right? In-house uh, sort of private infrastructure versus completely hosted in the cloud through AWS and so on. So that's completely an external disruption that nobody could plan for. And because of that, multiple new markets have come up, multiple new companies. Same thing with our space and HR and talent. Same thing with e-commerce and retail. Who would have thought anybody would buy anything online and then so who would buy anything else but books online? Well, who would buy anything but books and electronics online? And now who would buy anything offline? We've come to that point. You get everything pretty much uh, starting from groceries all the way to books and TV. So there's massive disruptions, which was enabled by the internet. So as you think about what you're doing as a company, you want to keep your customer again. And like I said earlier, and you want to make sure you have that hypothesis and validation going on constantly. And you know, if, if you get your co-founders, you get your investors, and then you constantly keep on top of the customer. Now, I think you've done everything you can to, to make sure that you maximize the chances of success of yourself, uh, of your company. You know, that, those are the two, top three things I would think about. You know, if I were to sit down, and by the way, I do sit down with a lot of early founders, and these are the kinds of things I talk to them about. Well, and the things that I really liked is you talked about um... – uh, you talked about a lot of the pieces that happen even before you start thinking about or start thinking about the, the product or the product marketing or mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. finding a fit for your, your product. You're thinking about the support structure that's going to ultimately be the foundation of that organization, the founders, mm -hmm. the investors, what does that core team look like, has a big role to play. Mm -hmm. but I, I think you're right. I think I think often – it's um, it's not picked and thought through as fully as 
team should, it's maybe done because it's the easiest thing or the thing that's right in front of their face or the relationship they have versus really finding a good support structure that you just laid out for them. Yeah. And, you know, the same things are really invariant when we think about an exit. You know, we started this conversation with the exit. If I think about what are the three things that that the potential acquirers, acquirers are looking at, it's the same three. How good is the co-founding team and the broader team? How good, where are these investors coming from? And a lot of the investors have relationships in these large companies that they have sold other startups into. And three, what kind of is the customer and what's the market? What problem are these guys solving that can accelerate based on what they have and what I don't have as a buyer of this company and this technology, right? It comes down to the same three things, even at the exit. So having that consistency throughout the life of the company is really important because the the, the exit also depends on that. That's awesome. Uh, Nikhil, like I said a couple minutes ago, I think we can end up talking for another hour or so and, and dive into some <laughs> of the sure. details, but the, the time the time doesn't afford it. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. But thank you so much for uh, for jumping on with us today. Very very much appreciated. We uh, loved hearing your perspectives, your thoughts on um, kind of walking an organization through these different stages, what you mm-hmm. need to rely on to uh, to do that, how you're thinking about building this great structure within the organization, and and then, you know, I think I uh, very much enjoyed the the opportunity to hear your thoughts on that third-party perspective. What does the customer in the marketplace really think about our product and service and what are what need are we solving and how is that keeping us on our toes? So uh, we packed a lot into a very short period of time. So thank you for jumping on with us today and sharing your thoughts. No, thank you very much. And I hope some of the discussion is helpful to your audience. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I just love listening to Nikhil. He's got such a great perspective. You know, last week we had Kevin come in and talk a little bit about culture. Next week we have Darren coming on, again, talking about culture and how to make that all work. But Nikhil's the perfect person to sit down and talk about the DNA of the culture, how that starts from the genesis of those first founder or founders, what those partnerships look like, who are those early people you bring on, how do you share that vision, how do you communicate it? It's easy when things are going well, but when things turn sour, man, it goes sour fast. So hopefully you got some great stuff out of Nikhil. I'd recommend following him on LinkedIn. And that's Nikhil V. Raj. So N-I-K-H-I-L-V as in Victor, R-A-J. For me, well, I hope you listen to the podcast. You can find us all on foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co, the place where exceptional founders grow. And also there you can find our book. That's Beyond Product, which is now available on pre-order at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thanks for listening and hope you have a great week. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.